Welcome to A Cinematic Journey. I'm Peter Billingsley. My name is Nick Shank. Yes, and this is the podcast where we explore the themes, scenes, and elements of the movies that we love. Uh, and today's movie was actually with two different studios in a 24-hour period. This movie was written in a single weekend. Yes, and John Candy made the most out of a 23-hour workday. <laughs> This is inspired from a single uh, single scene from an, another film. And oddly, this is arguably the most violent Christmas movie after Die Hard. <laughs> That's right. And of course, we are talking about... Home Alone. Home Alone. I can't seem to find my toothbrush, so I'll pick one up when I go out today. Other than that, I'm in good shape. Right away, we see Kevin McAllister. He is the youngest of a very large family. There's so many kids, they don't even name them all in the beginning. We are in the suburbs of Chicago. We're in a very nice home. There's a cop at the house. And he's giving some warnings that there's been a rash of break-ins in the neighborhood for people to be careful. It's the holiday season. These things are going on. We learn that he isn't who he says he is. This whole giant family, we're talking like 13, 14 people are all getting ready to pack their bags and go on an airplane and go to France. Kevin feels unnoticed, underappreciated. It feels like he's always the guy who they blame everything on. The mom even banishes him to sleep in the attic overnight. We get a real sense here that he's not happy in this family and this family is not really happy with him. He's made a declaration. He wished that his family would disappear. He doesn't want them around anymore. Right. And so he comes off as a little harsh, but, you know, we've got kids and, you know, an eight-year-old is very <laughs> capable of saying that stuff. And a, and a frustrated parent ready to go on a trip is very capable of saying something back. And so just after this, the family wakes up. They're late for this trip. They rush and fly to the airport. Right. And they get there and they run on to, to a plane. And that's what takes us to really what is the central conflict of this movie in this next scene. Yeah. Let's take a look. What else can we be forgetting? I made my family disappear. Kevin, you're completely helpless. There are 15 people in this house, and you're the only one who has to make trouble. Look what you did, you little jerk. I made my family disappear. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. No matter how many gifts you get this holiday season, you get to define how you give to yourself. For those who have participated in or have given the gift of therapy, you know it helps people become the best versions of themselves. One of the most common themes of holiday movies is growth. What better sponsor to have than the only therapy designed to be flexible and suited to your schedule? So if you're thinking about starting therapy, BetterHelp is entirely online and is the easiest way to get started. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Christmas today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Christmas. So there you have it. Uh, the game is afoot, so to speak, and Absolutely. this really does set up the central conflict of the movie. Kevin believes his wish did in fact come true. He is now home alone and his family has disappeared right. in his eyes. Um, now, this is a kid who couldn't pack his own suitcase. Right. Um, so can he survive? Can he make it right. uh, with his family gone by himself? Even more so, uh, he doesn't know what's coming, which is... 
there's burglars got his house targeted and then and not much later they realize he's home alone so there's sort of three threads that we're following it's kevin home alone can he feed himself take care of himself we have burglars approaching and we get the sense that these two trains are going to collide and third the family is now gone and they are going to have their own story of trying to get back along for the ride this kind of leads us into an interesting element of movies, which, you know, is sort of buying the buy that we call sometimes. Buying right? the buy. This is a, something that we talk about a lot when we're developing movies, when we're editing movies. If you don't believe or buy the concept that leads you off into the journey, you're not going to believe or like anything in the rest of the movie. For a lot of people, it was a stretch that you would leave an eight-year-old alone. But the filmmakers had to spend a a lot of craft and work and thought and time in making sure this is airtight and that we buy that, in this case, be able to leave an eight-year-old, their youngest oh, kid alone. alone. There's a scene in the kitchen where everything goes wrong the night before and the pizza gets spilled and the milk gets spilled. It goes all over the passports and their tickets. As they gather up the wet napkins, you see a shot into the garbage can and there's a single airline ticket. Yeah, and it's Kevin's airline ticket. And this just kind of takes off the table, so to speak, that when they got to the ticket counter, they wouldn't have the ticket and then realize, oh, Kevin's not here. In addition, the filmmakers also add this sense of magic when Kevin wishes his family would disappear. It's almost like circus music. It's as though the environment is conspiring and swirling. Kind of reminds me of Big. Right. You know, when he makes that wish, the wind is blowing, the electricity goes off which means that they oversleep in the morning and they're rushing out of the house in chaos, further helping us by, we left an eight-year-old behind. They all rush out into two different vehicles. One of the kid takes a head count of all the kids and they accidentally include a neighbor. And further to that, they've also built in a European trip, which is a long flight. So long they're going to be airborne without phones and the phones are out in the neighborhood. So there's a lot of detail, but if you, as you said, a lot of people would say, I would never leave my eight-year-old home alone. Well, they pull it off. You believe it and they can do it. Absolutely. And so when you try to punch holes in this, th it's pretty airtight. In search of the perfect DP. Well, we are very excited to welcome uh, our guest, cinematographer of Home Alone, Julio Macat. Thank you for coming in. Oh, thank so you so much. For Appreciate me. it. This thank is awesome. It's very cool because there's a lot of elements, obviously, to this movie that people love. But I would certainly say that the photography, um, the momentum, the beauty, the stunts is right up there. This was your second feature film, and your first one was a horror movie, right? Yeah, my first one was barely called a movie. <laughs> yeah, it, was, uh, it was, you know, five guys trying to make something out of a story. But, um, yeah, it was my first union job. Um, I, I actually, as a director of photography, I had done a second unit for Warner Brothers. Okay. For a movie called Tango and Cash, where we oh, yeah. did a lot of stunts. Oh, also, a lot of music videos and some pretty sexy other commercials, right? I mean, this yeah. was the day when there was a lot of handicapping from the visual style of music videos and commercials, definitely, right? People definitely. were pulling talent out of that pool. Definitely. And, and also moving the camera to a score, you know, to music. Mm -hmm. I, I have to say my forte was, was moving the camera to music. And then something else I had on my reel, which was a Christmas commercial. It was a McDonald's commercial called The Perfect Tree, which was, uh, you know, a family going out to find the perfect Christmas tree. So the camera would drive around town and see all the houses with the lights on. Oh, that's on cool. And stuff, you know. Is this your oh commercial? Oh, my God. This is it. Oh, my God. That's a commercial. <laughs> 
For those hardy souls who brave the elements in search of the perfect tree, McDonald's has a treat just for you. Can you imagine? That got me the gig. How fun is that? An executive from Warner Brothers introduced Chris Columbus and I, and uh, he saw that on my reel, and he saw that I could do the stunts, and he thought he'd take a chance. A big idea and battle plans. John Hughes had shared with Vince that um, when he was testing Uncle Buck, one of the highest testing and favorite scenes is when John Candy's girlfriend comes to the door, Macaulay opens the mail slot and demands to see the driver's license, right? <laughs> and is in fact protecting the home yeah. in a kind of real way. The audience went nuts for it. And I think it, you know, either he had the concept and it gave him confidence or it was an aha moment to say, yeah. man, I can build a movie around this. You know, he wrote the script sure. from, uh, in, over a period of three days or four days or something like that from from beginning to end. Yes. The concept of, of a little boy protecting his house and protecting himself, you know, how powerful that concept is. Uh, it, and how right. I think that's what resonated, you know, around uh, the audiences around the world that every kid felt like, oh, I'm going to set up some traps and make sure the boogeyman doesn't get me. Were you, um, this film's obviously a comedy. You didn't have a lot of that in your, right. necessarily in your work. Were you intimidated? knowing that it was comedy or was there an approach that you took to the comedy that you felt confident that you would be able to execute? You know, Chris, Chris Columbus had, um, had talked about, you know, the tone of the movie, which is so important for the cinematographer and the director to discuss what the tone is. And, and what I thought instinctively, what I did correctly was to convey all of our conversations. I wrote this letter to the crew saying, what Chris and I had been talking about and the things that were important to us and the tone of it and how we were going to try to, in the color palette, we were going to go in this direction and how we were going to try to move the camera a lot mm -hmm. until the time when the kid realizes that he was left alone and then the camera was going to stop for the effect. And uh, I, I also wanted to point out that the reverse effect of, you know, when, when you go into your grandparents' house or the place where you were raised, and when you go in there as an adult and everything seems so little, right? You know? Yes. All the rooms seem so tiny. And I thought, uh, well, what would the reverse of that be for a little kid? I started to, to go around my house on my knees a lot just to see that point of view of the lower right. angle. And, and I thought, okay, so it, it, the reverse effect of something being so small is that a little kid would see it all as big. We talked about the house being a character and how in some scenes we were trying to make the house come to life to be scary. Originally, we had a visual effects sequence of, of the fireplace coming to life, which, you know, got cut from the fact that we couldn't afford to do it. And then it, it turned into, you know, the camera simply with a big wide angle lens rushing towards, towards, towards that the furnace, the furnace yeah. and then that furnace opening up and a light gag inside. Right. right. You know, so somehow that became a two million dollar sequence that we couldn't <laughs> afford. But it's because you had a point of view on it. Right. So then yeah. you could execute it. You knew what you wanted to get out of it. So you can. Right. Right. Just what the, adjust what the, the technique. Was, right. Yeah. But you knew what the point was. But it was great that every department knew about that. 
on other movies, people don't do that. And I think it suffers from it because there's so many departments. Right. It, it's, right. It, there's so many decisions being made. You want to all come from the same place. Yeah. It's, it, it, instead of it being a job, it's a, this is a, an endeavor. Trust me, all of this was just instinctual because I had no freaking clue what I was doing. I, I just thought, I, I knew I could shoot shots, but I didn't know that they, they would come together and have a flow to it. It was one of those circumstances where every, every facet, every department helped the next one. I got to tell you, I've done 40 movies now, and it just doesn't happen that often. Mm -hmm. It may no, have happened right. three or four times in my career, you know, it's, it, to, to where everything helps everything else, and then in the end, it's a conglomerate of, of everyone at their best. Hughes protects his house. This movie almost didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, were you in prep when? Yeah, the, the, to summarize it, they wanted to make a $10 million movie that went up to something like 14 in the end, you know. Warner was, Brothers wanted a 10 million and the budget was going up in prep, yeah, right? Which yeah. happens. Which happens. And and people thought, I think uh, Scott, our producer, and, and people thought, you know, this is a major studio. If it's three to $4 million difference, you know, They'll figure out how to make right. it up. It's a humble budget. You and know. it's John Hughes. And it's John Hughes. Who has had a know. lot of success. His yeah. movies have proven they and, make a lot of money. Chris Columbus. Who, That's right. You know, had done Adventures in Babysitting. Adventures in Babysitting. Uh, had written Goonies. You know, just mm -hmm. amazing. You know, it's, it's not. And they were, you know, seeing that we had our act together. We were prepared. We had boards. We had a plan. Sure. But uh, they made the mistake, Warner Brothers did, to get into a pissing match with John Hughes. And mm -hmm. little did they know that John Hughes had an open door in another studio, yep. you know, when they really wanted him and they wanted his business. And, and uh, he had spoken to Joe Roth, you know, about it. And, and when they saw that the movie wasn't getting made, um, it, it was tricky because, you know, uh, for a movie to go into turnaround and, and to get picked up by another studio. It doesn't happen it, all the time. It doesn't happen all the time. And but this went down quickly. It went down over like in a, day. a day. Like overnight. Yeah. We, at one point, we had a Warner Brothers representative shutting down the movie. Right. Shutting it down. Just coming to every department and saying, you know, pack up your stuff and we're done. Right. You're they're they're bringing you boxes and saying, yeah, <laughs> go home. Uh, you, you go home. But and you're close to shooting, right? You're... Yeah. we. I would say we were two to three weeks away from Two shooting. to three weeks away from shooting. Yeah. And and prepared. And, and, then, uh, and then Scott, our producer... Comes in right after the Warner Brothers guy said, "Wait, wait, wait, guys! It's not, not just don't pack up just yet. <laughs> don't we're, go to Hawaii. We're trying to see. We're trying to see if we can figure vacation. this out. And you know, and, and and you know that horrible feeling when you're about 100%. to do something and then the bottom falls out of it. You know, yep. It's it's so heartbreaking. It's the worst. Basically, John had probably sensed this coming. Yeah. Right, and had a relationship at Fox. Yes." And had said, hey, if this happens, this might be available. Yeah. And they had probably given him assurances to say, if it does, um, we're here for you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think John had to pitch uh, Fox what, what it was and what the budget was and, sure. and how far apart they were. But they, they knew were. the value of it. And by yeah. the way, I mean, I know we say either illegal or whatever. This is not, this is also like when 
when kids go get another job and then put in their two weeks notice, you know what I mean? It's like, it's not uncommon to say, let me get set up. Yeah. I'll take Warner's to the wall, say, all right, then do it or don't. Warner's called the bluff and said no. And Fox said, great, yeah. bring it on and over can, here. Can you imagine being that executive who called John? A hundred percent. And it's so short said the thing, take it or leave it. That uh, that goes that goes to show you, you know, don't mess around with John Hughes, who hated the establishment. He hated the studio system. 100%. He didn't live in what, Los Angeles. No, that's why he stayed in Chicago so yep. he could control his projects. And, um, you know, and, and it was so sad, you know, what, what happened and how young he died, because he he had a lot more to say. 100%. You know, he, he was just a genius, I think. And. And, and we all learned so much from him. Smoke and mirrors. Many of the gags were on camera when Pesci gets burned in the head. Yes, a famous. Okay, that, that was a, an on-camera practical effect that we did. We had a two-way mirror in front of the lens, and then the two-way mirror projected off to the side a little black square. Within the black square, we we had a mannequin so that we could have real fire hitting the mannequin around the head and it would contour the fire would contour itself around the mannequin's right. head and we lined it up exactly so that it it looked like it was hitting pesci you know, how unbelievable. You, how are you coming up with these? I mean, on the spot, you right know, on the day, is it, are you collaborating with Chris and the production designer and are you sort of in, in a room in, and drawing things? How are you coming up with these? In that case, uh, we talked about how we couldn't afford to do it with visual effects. And I think John Muto, the production designer, said, well, we could always do a mirror shot. And I went, what the hell is that? Right. You know, <laughs> and he goes, well, if you get a two-way mirror and you project the thing and, you know, have you ever been to Disneyland, you know, when the, when, when, when you're in the, uh, the haunted house ride and you see the people dancing, the ghosts dancing around, right. it's the same effect that you're reflecting. And I go, oh shit, well, let me see if I can figure that out. And it just happened to work. The other one was when, when we had to shoot, um, um, Kevin uh, at the Christmas tree and he's looking at the red ball and he sees a reflection of the bad guys. He sees Pesci peeking through the, through window. the window. Right. So we had to figure out how to get the camera that close and and shoot that and not see ourselves. Not see the self, so right. we figured out how to put two two mirrors at an angle with a hole cut in the middle. So that you'd be reflecting other parts of the house. That's of the awesome. I've never heard of that. That's amazing. Yeah, it was cool. I wanted to ask you too about the tarantula. Yes. I mean, you. Yeah, <laughs> he I, has a point of view on this. I mean, the the tarantula kind of steals the show in a lot of scenes. <laughs> it does. Every scene that he it's in the foreground or in the background, it's just it kind of just like. It's a it's a major character, really. Was it real on the face? It was real on the face. You put a tarantula on his face. Yeah, and the the funniest thing about that. Okay, so you know you had a spider wrangler. So Daniel Stern goes, you know, right before we do the scene, I just want to confirm with you that the spider is not going to sting me. Right, of course. Logical question. Right. (laughs) The wrangler goes, well, I'm sorry, but I can't can't guarantee guarantee that. that. (laughs) So. So, uh, so he got nervous and and then he finds, ah, shit, let's just do it. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. You know, and he got into like a thing 
And, and then we did it. And with that energy and that panic and 100%. that reaction, it was real and it was on his face and he flipped out and we got it. It's a genuine I, reaction. But I had read that the scream was dubbed in because if he would have screamed, it would have bit him maybe. And was that true? I think so, but I guarantee you that he screamed. He <laughs> I heard a scream. Was there a, a, a camera that you used and did you have a name for it? Yes. What is it called? Yeah. We used to call it bonus cam. Uh, but you had another name for it. Also known as the chicken shit camera. Okay, that's right. Because when we started, uh, and I felt so bad, these these stunt guys were taking big falls. You yeah. Know? And and Chris um, would watch the monitor and, and, and cringe. So I wanted to respect that. So I was also scared that I wasn't going to get the stunt. So we'd usually have two cameras on the stunt. And then I got, you know, an IMO camera, the, the smallest camera possible with a, I remember it was a hundred foot spool of film. And You're I was talking like yeah, inches a, by a inches. Camera. It's, it's yeah, small, I, right. I, Is know. there a moment you can think of in the film where that, where it's in that chicken shit cam and a hero shot or that it saved you? Oh, absolutely. Almost. Well, you don't know what's happened. What happened was that bonus cam at Daly's became the hero. It was the funniest shot. Really? It was, you know, oftentimes all we could do is put it on the edge of the frame. Right. And then it just so happened that Pesci would fall and his face would be right next to the camera, you know, and it was the best shot of the whole gag, you know, because it was wide, it was silly, but... It was effective. Vince Vaughn had told me that you used it on Wedding Crashers <laughs> oh, yeah. for similar reasons, right? These guys are violently hitting each other for yeah. real on the field and you want to capture it. You want to capture it. And what's really fun is to place it and hide it so that people don't even know it's there. They don't know that it's there. Yeah. we but like it's providing we, you insurance to definitely. get the shot. So we, you know, so, so you'd have very commonly known as a trash can camera where, you know, there'd be a, suddenly there'd be a trash can in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and we're hiding a camera. Right, right, right. right. But when we figured out that, that this this wide angle uh, was really working, then we started to think about what else can we do with it? You know, let's 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 tie it to a rope and let's send it down the chute, you know, mm -hmm. to be the point of view of, of the iron falling down. And for the audience to see the nail right before he steps on the nail. And, and that was a very simple gag where the nail, as you push down on it, it just went under. Right, that's yeah, just... But, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I put an extra little light on the nail so that it makes sure you really so. know it's right where your yeah, eye goes. And, and all the comedic stuff, you know, it plays better wide. You know, it we, does. We learned, we learned that, that comedy works best when you see the detail, then you see the results wide, and then in the ideal world, you have the person watching it. Pete, it's the holidays. Yes. What do you think about? You think about food. You and I, we're, we're, we're dudes. We love food. Oh, yes. We love cooking. <laughs> we love cooking for and with our families. Yes. And we're going to be doing a lot of cooking on our Traeger this holiday season. Yes. In fact, we're going to fire it up and we're going to do a turkey on the Traeger and we're going to smoke a pie for dessert. 
Done. So many great products. They have rubs. They have sauces. At Traeger.com, you can get all of your cooking needs right, right there in one stop. And I've been using the Wi-Fi connectivity, which means that I can monitor the temperature, the duration of the cook right on the Traeger app on my phone. Right. I don't even have to be at home. So for something like the size of a turkey, I get it on, I get the probes in it, and I just start to watch this thing as it cooks. I don't have to keep opening the lid, right, doing the right. push test, second guessing, hoping mm -hmm. that it's done. I know exactly to the number what the internal temperature is, and I basically just wait until it's done. They have the pellets. They have different flavored pellets. That's right. They have right. different sauces and rubs and everything. It, it, it's all-encompassing. So whether you're just starting out or you're a seasoned veteran, Traeger has the right grill for you. These grills are available in all different types at Traeger.com. Mm -hmm. And they have a sale going on right now. They don't do a lot of sales. It's $300 off select grills. Go to Traeger.com. Check it out. Ready, set, kid. We kept saying, if only we can make a movie as good as A Christmas Story. You know, that was that was the thing. As what well. a compliment. But ironic, right, that, that your film was inspirational in yeah. making Home Alone. I wasn't, we talked about your film time I, and time again. I sincerely was not aware of that. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I we really on ask Chris Columbus sometime. We kept talking about what was it, you know, that made Ra Ralphie so likable and, and uh, you know, that that sucked you into the story. <laughs> we just had the guests on in, from Christmas Story, and they were reminding us that the bullies in that movie, Bob Clark, the director, kept yeah. the bullies away from yeah. myself and Flick and Schwartz. Hmm. Did Is it true that Chris kept Joe and Daniel away from Macaulay offset to, especially keep, Pesci. to not let them get too friendly? Yeah, especially with Pesci. You wanted him to be more scary. So he, he discouraged uh, them from spending time together? Yes, yes, he definitely did. I thought that was really smart. Because they were the, the boogeyman, you know, they were the bad 100%. guys. And and, and if uh, they're lunching in the trailer, they might get too comfortable. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I think that was there, and, and I thought uh, that was very clever. They're committed. You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're not in a comedy, yeah. those actors. They're in a real situation. Yeah. You know, and that's what makes it funny. The situation is absurd, but the way they play it and the commitment and... Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not a bunch of yuck yucks to each other and it's painful and it hurts and they're yeah. selling it. And you have good actors. I mean, Pesci obviously is an Oscar actor. Yeah, his biggest problem was going to be not cussing. He had to develop his own Russia, Russia, you know. What? 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 What happened? Did you, we dealt with this on a lot of the movies I did that the, Kids can only work certain hours. Yeah, six hours. Right. And so the boards you would have to do, or sometimes do coverage yeah. without the kids there, or do moments, you know, you'd shoot Macaulay for the first six hours, then do the stuff in the van with the bad guys. Yeah, we, like to, we needed to maximize good... your day because you can't just shoot a six hour day. No, we and we had two really good doubles for Macaulay, so we could shoot over shoulders. You know, we, we did several of those when we lost them after six hours. Um, but he loved, he loved being on the set. He, he loved, it was when the Nintendo, the little Nintendo was popular. So he'd, he'd be playing Nintendo on the set. He'd be sitting on people's laps. It, it's fun. I'd give him a the ride on the dolly. Yeah. Oh, those were the best. <laughs> yeah. Those were the best because there's yeah, two seats the on the wheels. dolly. You'd sit, you get to play with the wheels. Yeah. That's the irony. They always say, well, we're protecting you. You have to go home. It's like, I'm not tired. <laughs> yeah. My mom doesn't care. I'd rather be here. And they sent home. One yeah. time I was on a movie, and this was, I think, in 79, and they said, oh, well, you know, you're out of gas, and 
um, there was one shot left and they said, you're going to have to come in and do it in the morning. It was just one shot. I was like, just let's do it now. Social worker, absolutely not. You're in jeopardy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I go back to the trailer, change. It's such a pain in the ass. Now I got to come in for a full day, do three hours of school the next day. Right, right. So say goodbye to the social worker. She drives away. I go back in my trailer, put my costume back on, and hey, this is 79. Instead of the director, my mom's there. It's like, let's do it. He's like, great, let's do it. Get the close up, like, boom, call her, say, oh, well, they canceled tomorrow. They don't need them. Then I have the day off. Oh it was like, you do God. what you got to do. Oh you know, I don't want to come in for a full day either. Not like, anymore. Yeah. We'd all end up no, in jail. No, we'd all end up in jail. <laughs> even, <laughs> even in Bulgaria, when um, we were shooting in Bulgaria on Christmas Story Christmas, they were very strict about the rules for their kids. Yeah. And so we had a lot of kids going down hills. And remember, at one point, it was, you know, the whistle blows and the kids are done. They're going to bring in the next batch. And some woman, she says this, time is up, but I bring you 10 fresh children. <laughs> she called them fresh children. And, and we tried not to laugh because it's not her oh, fault. But, you know, yes, that's right. But that was just how it translates. 23 hours of polka. I wanted to ask you, too, about um, John Candy. Mm. Because we had read, obviously, John plays a, a small role, but a significant role in this. Yeah. Um, in in helping provide transportation home, and we had heard that basically he agreed to one day. Yes, but this was a very it was truly one day. Right, they milked it. We had heard twenty three hours. Can you tell us about the day? It was a twenty three hour day, uh, like nonstop, nonstop. John Hughes was on set for two days, but when John was there for that one long day, he came. He came. John Hughes and John Candy, huge history of collaborations together, had made many successful yes, films. Great absolutely, films. and then it was all about him. Improvising, and that's part of which the you had not I... done on the rest of the film. No, right? the rest no. film you were sticking to the script. Yes, you're not making changes, but suddenly John Candy comes. You're writing on the spot. You want to get? Yeah. You, did you do that? We did that in in the uh, vehicle. Yeah, tell me, have you ever gone on vacation and left your child home? No. No, but I did leave one at a funeral parlor once. Yeah, it was, uh, it was terrible, too. You know, I was all distraught and everything, you know, the wife and I. We left the, the little tyke there in the funeral parlor all day. All day. So, and did that just come out of nowhere? It, it came out of nowhere. <laughs> uh, so just like the, the Polka Kings. I had a few hits a few years ago. Uh, that's why, I, you know, just Polka, Polka, Polka. Polka, Polka, Polka. No? It, Twin Lakes Polka. Damavuji Polka, a.k.a. Kiss Me Polka. Polka twist. Well, these are songs. Yeah. Yeah, we some fairly big hits for us, you know, in the early 70s, you know. <laughs> yeah, we sold about 623 copies of that. In Chicago? No, Sheboygan. Yeah. Did he know that he was signing up for a 23-hour day? Because for the audience, you know, a 12-hour no. day is a long day. Maybe we go to 14, no. and at that point, you're done. 23 is unheard of. But I want to say it was a 23-hour day, but it didn't feel like it. You know, mm -hmm. and I'm sure John was so into it and having a good time. And, you know, we, we were all so happy that he was there. And he, I think he felt it. I think he felt that he was coming in, you know, and with Catherine, who, you know, he was friends with, too. From, yes. From, um, SCTV, you know, her, SCTV. yeah. TV. And, and they're so, so good on screen and then, together. You know, and we all showed a lot of respect, which is, you know, something I want to put out there to to young cinematographers, mm -hmm. the the value of showing respect to your actors and mm -hmm. saying, I can't believe that you're here. So when you have that respect, when you have 
that setting, a 23-hour day didn't seem like a 23-hour right. day. Right, and I'm sure with his energy and yeah, the fun that and, and fun. And, that, and, and it was only because he was busy mm-hmm. with other things could only really yeah. give one day. Yeah. So you had to jam it all in. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, somebody told me that he made less money on that day than the pizza boy. Than the pizza boy. boy. We, yeah, yeah the pizza we had guy read that. Had 12 lines. He did it for scale as a favor. <laughs> he did it for scale. You got every ounce out of him. Call your shot. Do you have a shot as the cinematographer that, in your mind, defines the movie, really? Yeah, for me, without a doubt, it's it's when he goes to the church. Ah. And, um, and it was just a combination of everything. And, and I kept thinking, how would Steven Spielberg shoot this, <laughs> you know? And, and immediately I thought, I need a crane. I need a crane because I need to... I need to show something that feels like he's a tiny little kid and crane down on him um, and go into it. And I need to see this huge church that feels majestic and um, scary, but also hopeful and it's beautiful. Yeah. And and I had... uh, I use this netting material in front of the lens, Mm -hmm. you know, that gives a a slight... um, halo and a slight cross to stuff. So in the highlights, if you look closely on the street lamps, you know, they have these tiny little highlights to it. For sure. And it makes no sense that the stained glass windows would be lit from outside. No, <laughs> but, it, but who cares, right? Right, no, you're... I don't know. Yeah, but that was a big lighting setup. It's yeah. also nice, you know, in this, this movie's a little older, but in a lot more Christmas movies, church and Christ are not in movies as much anymore christmas movies and you know this is centered in the true spirit of christmas right which is the birth and so you're you're sort of in god's house trying to sort out your own issues and concerns yeah and it's done in kind of the holiest place i remember also when when macaulay's having dinner by himself and it's nine o'clock and the guys are going to show up at nine o'clock and right before he eats his mac and cheese right he he does the sign of the cross and Mm -hmm. i wondered about that i but you know chris columbus is a very religious person as well yeah and and he respected that and john as well so it, it didn't seem forced it's funny because what sticks out for so long was a charlie brown christmas you know, which was in 1965. And when they're asking about that, it's Linus nails it and reads, reads a Bible passage. And then yeah. you then you have almost nothing for a long time. Yeah, it's just an interesting observation that we're seeing in some of these, how it's, and it's yeah. effective, it works. It was awesome to talk to you about it. And thanks for bringing oh. in the stuff and for being so open. My pleasure, my pleasure. Appreciate it, it's a pleasure, pleasure to meet you. Yeah, thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you. This was Great, fun. Appreciate it. Great, beautiful. <laughs> If you're running a small business, especially around the holidays, you know things can get very stressful. New customers and new heights means new problems every single day. And as your business grows and your company expands, the simple tasks you used to do in a day are now taking weeks to complete. Well, if this is you, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, 1. 36,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators 
in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place, with NetSuite. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash Christmas. That's netsuite.com slash Christmas to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash Christmas. Searching for answers. So he's moved through this gauntlet. He's kind of gained this sense of bravery. Right. Um, he's acquired some skills. And uh, he's learned that at 9 o'clock, these burglars are coming to his house. It is the big showdown. He's pushed it back enough times, but now... It cannot oh, cannot be avoided. Yeah, hell or high water, this, this is going to happen. And so he wants maybe some advice, maybe some help. He's going to go seek out a mentor. And the first mentor he finds on the street is Santa Claus. Santa, who just got a ticket, who's hiding that he's having a cig. <laughs> right. And who really doesn't provide him with anything, only gives him a tic-tac, kind of pats his head and wishes him a Merry Christmas. Santa Claus is not going to provide any answers for him. Santa is not very helpful. In fact, Santa, Santa's car doesn't even start. So it leads him to another situation, seeking out another mentor. And that takes us to our next scene here. You can say hello when you see me. You don't have to be afraid. There's a lot of things going around about me, but none of it's true. Okay? Been a good boy this year? I think so. You swear to it? No. Yeah, I had a feeling. Well, this is the place to be if you're feeling bad about yourself. I've been kind of a pain lately. I said some things I shouldn't have. I really haven't been too good this year. Yeah. I'm kind of upset about it because I really like my family. Even though sometimes I say I don't. Sometimes I even think I don't. Do you get that? I think so. How you feel about your family is a complicated thing. Especially with an older brother. Deep down, you always love them. But you can forget that you love them. And you can hurt them and they can hurt you. And that's not just because you're young. You want to know the real reason why I'm here right now? Sure. I came to hear my granddaughter sing. And I can't come and hear her tonight. You have plans? No. I'm not welcome. At church? Oh, you're always welcome at church. I'm not welcome with my son. We lost our tempers. And I said I didn't care to see him anymore. He said the same. And we haven't spoken to each other since. If you miss him, why don't you call him? I'm afraid if I call him, he won't talk to me. How do you know? I don't know. I'm just afraid he won't. No offense, but aren't you a little old to be afraid? You can be a little old for a lot of things. You're never too old to be afraid. That's true. I've always been afraid of our basement. It's dark, there's weird stuff down there, and it smells funny, that sort of thing. It's bothered me for years. The basements are like that. Then I made myself go down there to do some laundry, and I found out it's not so bad. All this time I've been worrying about it, but if you turn on the lights, it's no big deal. What's your point? My point is you should call your son. What if he won't talk to me? At least you'll know. 
then you can stop worrying about it. And you won't have to be afraid anymore. I don't care how mad I was, I'd talk to my dad, especially around the holidays. I don't know. Just give it a shot, for your granddaughter anyway. I'm sure she misses you and the presents. So there you have it. It is the old man who's been presented as the monster earlier, the villain next door, right? Right. They, they've been scared of him the whole time. And so it's very interesting in this where they reverse roles in a way. Yeah. This is generally when the mentor would give the sage advice that would affect the hero and he would continue on his journey with the newfound change. But it's not really what happens in this scene. Kevin kind of advises the old man and says... You need to forgive as well. You need to call your family. You need to bury the hatchet. You need to be with your family and put a value on them. At the end of this scene, they've both been pushed from whatever forces are under that roof. That's right. To be able to face what they've done right, face what they've done wrong, and, and maybe try to go correct that on Christmas Eve. Yeah, it's kind of cool. They both came there looking for answers. They both got it in an unlikely place from each other. End of conflict. Yeah, this movie, you've all the trains of two trains have collided. Kevin and the burglars are at it. The mom is still racing to try to get home. And um, this leads us into our end of conflict. What are you going to do to him, Harry? I'm going to do exactly what he did to us. I'm going to burn his head with a blowtorch. Go ahead, smash his face with an iron. I can slap him right in the face with a paint can, baby. Or shove a nail through his foot. First thing I'm going to do bite off every one of these little fingers, one at a time. <laughs> Come on, let's get you home. Move. Always leaving the water running. Now we know each and every house that you've hit. You know, we talked about this in other John Hughes movies. He has a character who's maybe presented as a problem. Right. But the protagonist shows that person grace. Right. Somebody who maybe everyone else is either afraid of or looks down on, but they have the empathy and the humanity to treat them just as an equal or, as, you know, family or friends. Yes. And, and that person comes to their aid in the end of the game. The bad guys are caught. All the things that they thought they were doing to be, at least Daniel Stern, to be cleverer right. is part of their undoing. Um, Which I have to say, it's what's worse than getting your house robbed on Christmas Eve is someone turning on the water. And if anyone has owned a house, the amount of damage that that could do is worse than anything. Oh, gosh. It's so true. It's Christmas. Kevin feels like he did it. He protected the home. He defended the house. He's run the gauntlet. He's be, he's been transformed through all this. And he's kind of come and he's sort of an evolved person. And all that's left to do is to resolve this great story. And so let's take a look at this next clip. Kevin! Kevin! Christmas, sweetheart. Oh, Kevin, I'm so sorry. 
Man, good stuff. Good stuff yeah. on that. They wrap up so much so effectively. Mom says she's sorry. Yeah, he waits for it. She says Merry Christmas, and he said, mm-mm. We're not going there. He's he's cleaned up that place. He's taking care of business. You can tell he's he is the man of the house now. Yeah, and he doesn't need to share what happened. He he earned all that. But the beauty of this too is like, but it's still real in a way. Like the brother is still an ass. Yeah, and, it's, and the pecking order is still there. But Kevin doesn't probably care anymore. These themes that emerge from the movies that we look at, right? The power of forgiveness, um, which they were both able to do. He to his own family, them to him, and. The neighbor to his family yep. creates this sort of beautiful Christmas miracle. I mean, it's such a perfect shot with the old man hugging her and it, his hair is kind of wet and matted down from the real snow. That's right. And uh, and you just go, boy, that is truth. That is real. And, you know, this, this, this movie hits on the true meaning of Christmas. Right? Forgiveness, family, love, love, joy. That's right. And it, you know, hits you in, a, in the perfect way. It's not saccharine. Nope. Doesn't beat you over the head, and you know everything which is paying off in this movie was well set up. Damn right, good movie. From a financial perspective, this movie did the two hundred and eighty million dollars right, at which, the box office. Yeah, and as we pointed out before, it was you know Warner Brothers wanted it for ten; these guys did it for fourteen. Yeah, it's a pretty good profit. It's also pulled off something that's pretty hard to do. Siskel and Ebert originally gave it an unflattering review. Right. Said they didn't get the movie. It wasn't that good. It was a bunch of silly gags. A year later, after the cultural impact, financial impact, power of this movie, fan support, they kind of had to eat crow and redo the review and acknowledge how good the movie is. That is extremely rare and uncommon for reviewers, especially those guys, Siskel and Ebert of the day were. Right. As big as big as it gets to kind of unwind a review. Right. They're kind of eep, we were wrong. Yes. So Home Alone, a classic, um, a great movie, a critical financial success, and um, no doubt um, lives in the pantheon where yeah. it sits. It deserves the accolades. It does. It holds up, man. Uh, well, Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Merry Christmas. This was fun. Thank you very much. Uh, Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks for showing up. 